Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You join us on the hollowed turf of our back garden. Sean, 13, is attempting to break his KPOPI record, unbeaten for the last two years. Looking good, Sean. Three more to go. Oh, no. Pitch invader. Late drama here as he's stolen the ball. Adidas tracksuit and trainers from Littlewoods, Ireland. <sighs> Own goal by Buster. Shop the brands you love at littlewoodsireland.ie. to a bonus episode of Murder in the Land of Oz. It's bonus time. It's bonus time. You're all going to get $500 transferred into your bank accounts because it's I bonus time. I would really go for some bonus right now. I could too. That was a joke. You guys aren't going to get any money. Sorry. Yeah, you're not getting any money. We don't get any money. So why would you get any money? We get some money. We, we get pay- some money, we but we don't, get we don't get $500 money. No, we get the Korea Mail subscription rate money. Exactly. The Sydney Morning Herald. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a fun story about the Sydney Morning Herald's website. If you have a Tell really me. slow internet connection, like I do, what you do is you click on the Sydney Morning Herald article, you hit Control A really quickly yeah. when it first loads, and then it'll pop up with the thing being like, you need to pay to see this article. You just Control V, you can select it all and copy and paste it all and paste it into a Word document and then read it for free. There you go. There you go. I don't know if that's Them useful. Them fat cats ain't getting any. <laughs> I'm not paying for my journalism. <laughs> I want it. Sorry, for free. journalists. Sorry, I don't believe you should get paid for the work that you do, even though I rely on it to create Sorry. the content that I make. I will. I will scam. I will open everything in a private window. Sorry, guys. So sorry. Anyway, bonus episode of Murder in the Land of Oz. Bonus, as um, we like to say. Bunus. The Bunus episode. Bunus episode. This was this was kind of like one of those, you know, those times when like the muses just like hit you and you're like, oh my God, I'm having a manic episode. I have to do something. You know those times where the muses just <laughs> hit you? Yep. Don't you? You're a creative type. I can't say I've ever been hit by a muse. Oh, well, I was going to say God first, and then I was like, no, people don't like God. Make it more relevant. So I went with the muses. <laughs> like Hercules? Yeah. Like those, like, Hercules. They hit me. Bless my soul. Herc was on a roll. <laughs> exactly. That's what happened. I just started hallucinating. There was, like, five women on the vase in Hercules and was like, oh, I need to write an episode about missing persons. 
Um, <gasps> not that we, not that you aren't like the most passionate person about missing persons. I know. I'm passionate about anything, honestly. Give me a topic and I'll get on my soapbox. But we have been talking a lot about missing persons um, in a couple of the cases that we covered in the season. And I made a comment in one of them that was like, you guys should all go on the Australian Missing Persons Register and see if you can submit information about anyone. And then I was like, maybe I should go on the Australian Missing Persons Register and see if I can submit information about anyone. And um, could you? No, I didn't know anything about anybody. Uh, so instead what I did is that I actually went to the um, National Missing Persons Database and went through every single missing persons case that they have active at the moment and compiled one from each state to be in this episode for what you a treaty all. for us all it was also not to like not to like there are 657 missing persons on <laughs> i read all 657 and i have to say like i've been going through a rough patch recently and like it was the most depressing thing i've ever done in my life it was the most depressing undertaking. That's that. just how much Ellen loves you, everybody. I think it's also about how much I love, like, punishing myself. <laughs> we love some masochism over here, don't I, we? Yes, we do. Anyway, so I'm going to talk about one missing person from each state. I don't know, like, honestly, I don't know how – I find all of this stuff quite interesting. I don't know how, interest, how interesting it's going to be to listen to because it's kind of like – they're all like, and then they vanished forever. Anyway, next one. So um, the I just wanted to, you know. No, it's important to talk about these people because they have families and friends that oh, are looking absolutely. for them. And the thing that I find crazy about it is that, you know, this information is super accessible online and it's accessible in newspapers and stuff like that. But if nobody ever hears about it or sees about it, they maybe don't even know that they have information that they could give about a missing person. I'm not like conceited enough to think that me doing this episode anybody's gonna be like wait a second I was there on October 13th 2001 I know exactly what she's talking about crime solved but you know I think it's important to you know keep the the names and the memories of these people alive even if we can't solve their cases it's important to remember them and know that there are still people who care um and here exactly right yeah Anyway, I got on the soapbox and I haven't even said the content yet. So let's do that now. So I'm going to start off in Queensland, um, the Sunshine State. Um, and <laughs> this case is one that I've known about for a long time. And I came across it online. Um, and I'm glad that I ha- am going to have the chance to talk about it because there's not, like with a lot of these cases, there's not a lot of information out there there's kind of only the bare bones and there's no way we would be able to cover it as a full episode but I'm glad that I think it's a super solvable case so if there is anybody that knows anything please tell the cops anyway so we're starting off with the case of mini club so mini club was reported missing by her family in late June of 2013 um so Minique is indigenous she's 170 centimeters tall she's a slim build brown hair and brown eyes she has a tattoo on the side of her neck that says Daniel, and she was 24 years old at the time of her disappearance, and she would be 30 years old now. So Monique was last seen at her home, getting into a car with three friends for an unplanned trip to Brisbane on the 20th of June, 2013. Um, Monique's friends returned to Harvey Bay two days later without Monique. They later said that Monique wanted to be dropped off in Kabulcha to be picked up by someone else. <laughs> 
Um, Monique phoned her mother on the 22nd of June and she said that she was planning on returning home to Harvey Bay the next day and just needed money to pay for her travel. Later that day, the 22nd, Monique was seen on CCTV footage getting off a train at Beanley train station. She was wearing a heavy black coat, a scarf wrapped around her head, sunglasses and a bright blue dress. And this is the last definitive sighting of Monique Club. Um, And Monique's family said that the clothing that she was wearing on the day of her disappearance was not something that Monique would usually wear. There's another sighting of Monique on the same day, and this isn't, it wasn't um, possible to 100% confirm whether or not this was Monique. Um, But the footage was from 22nd of June, 2013, when a woman resembling Monique was recorded running fearfully from a shopping center car park in Beanley. So due to the quality of the surveillance footage, police could not definitively confirm that this was Monique, and no stills have ever been released of this footage. Um, And it's also not known to the public whether or not anybody was recorded following her or chasing her or anything like that, or whether or not she was just running off of her own accord. In August of 2013, Monique's handbag was found in a location that police have not disclosed to the public, um, but somewhere in Brisbane. And all of her belongings appeared to be intact, like nothing was necessarily stolen or anything like that. Um, Police have never officially released any information about this finding, and the only information that I could find about it was from a Reddit post. So I would take it with a grain of salt, but it seemed pretty credible. Um, Monique has not had any communication with her family since June 2013, and she has missed several important family events, including her sister's 18th birthday and her grandfather's funeral. It was not usual for Monique to be out of contact with her family, and she had made no threats of suicide or self-harm prior to her disappearance. So the Queensland Police have actually not made any announcements or updates or anything like that about Monique's case since the 11th of July 2013, so like two weeks-ish after she went missing. There hasn't been any kind of like, you know, pleas for information or or rewards offered for information ever since she disappeared. So Monique's family actually offered $5,000 of their own money for anyone with information about Monique's disappearance. And last year they set up a GoFundMe so they could hire a private investigator to look into her disappearance. And as of now, which is August 2019, they've only raised about $800 of their $10,000 goal. Apparently it costs $1,000 just to, like, get all of the required paperwork and information and stuff like that to give to the private investigator um so i'm gonna link to the gofundme in the show notes um it's still active you can donate to it um Monique's family uh, commemorate Monique's memory um at Torquay jetty every year on the anniversary of her disappearance and every piece of information and every kind of you know memory of Monique that is out there online online right now is out there because of her family like I I don't know you know like I'm not a cop I don't know what the investigation into her disappearance was like I don't know if it was super comprehensive and they just couldn't solve it I don't know anything about it but you know her family really are the people who are like keeping her memory alive there really hasn't been much public information from the police since it happened six years ago um well her family still post on her Facebook nearly every day um or every you know month or you know and they still commemorate her memory and stuff like that and I think you know she's not forgotten she's not forgotten at all um you know Monique Monique was an indigenous woman she had a criminal record um 
she was not her family's not necessarily of like the highest socioeconomic status in Australia and not to be kind of critical of the police but I think that these are factors that maybe have contributed to the fact that her case is like completely unknown she went missing in broad daylight from a train station in like a heavily populated area of the third largest city in australia yeah like how i can't i mean i've been to beanley train station i've been to beanley shopping center i have no idea how somebody could go missing from that location you couldn't go missing from that location you would have to have been seen by somebody so, yeah, I'd never heard of this case. And to be honest, no. if she was white, then, yeah, we would have heard about it. Exactly. I think if, you know, even... For that, that age group, like... Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, she 100%. was... 100%. 24, you know, had been travelling with friends, had been in a public place. It's all the things that you think, like, keep you safe when you're out somewhere, you know, that there would be... Somebody will see you or, like, some camera will be recording you or something like that. But I have no idea why this case is still unsolved. And I would love for anybody with information, um, anybody who was like, wait, I was at Beanley train station on the 22nd of June 2013 and I have a fantastic memory, um, call Crime Stoppers. The number for Crime Stoppers is 1-800-333-000. if you have any information, please let somebody know. It's not too late at no, all. And somebody knows something. All. In some of these other cases that we're getting into, maybe there was no witnesses. But in this case, I'm so sure that there is somebody out there who knows something. And look, there's no time like the present. Mm-mm. So that was the disappearance of Finique Club. Um, we're going to move on to New South Wales now. And this is the story of... Now, this is going to be a pronunciation issue for me, and I promise I tried, but I couldn't find anything online. So, Stacey DeSilvi, I think is how you say his last name. Um, he was last known to be alive in July of 1994. Um, Stacey is of Sri Lankan descent. He's 160 centimeters tall with brown hair and gray eyes. He has a thin build and an olive complexion. He has a small scar on his right hand, and he was 22 years old at the time of his disappearance, and he would now be 47. So Stacey left his family home in Melbourne in 1992 to head to Sydney, where he'd gotten a spot to play in a band. Stacey was an artistic guy and he loved music and writing, and he had had some troubles in his life. He had some problems with bullying in high school, which had led to kind of like a change in his personality. Um, He became withdrawn and moody, and he had anger problems. So when his parents complained to the school about bullying, they were told that boys will be boys. Which is just, uh, boy, uh, uh, uh. bullies will be bullies. Boys will not be boys. That is a bullshit term and there is no way to apply it. Um, there's no valid way to apply that phrase. Anyway, so he was withdrawn from that school and enrolled in a different one, but he only lasted a term before dropping out in year 11. So he spent a bit of time traveling, staying with family in Europe, and he moved to Sydney after his travels. Um, He worked various jobs in pubs and cafes and did occasional gigs with his band. He was in kind of like infrequent contact with his parents. And when he did contact them, most often it was to ask for money. But like when his parents would try and call him back, he was often not available. So on the 23rd of May, 1993, he married a French girl who was staying in the same housing as him so that she could like stay in Australia on like a partnership visa. visa. But she left Australia four days later. Um, He then began living in Lismore and he spent time at the Southern Cross University campus, even occasionally attending lectures, even though he wasn't a student. 
Uh, he was a drug user, but because of his lack of funds, he was not a heavy user. A housemate described him as a spaced out kind of guy who was not stable and talked of demons and the like. Uh, an ex-girlfriend said that he was fun to be around and like a comedian, but he had a dark side and he could get violent. Not at her, but she said that he took his anger out on inanimate objects. The last time she's, they saw each other, Stacy threw a bike helmet against the wall and knocked over some furniture, then got hysterical and began to cry. Stacy's parents last heard from him in April of 1994. He called his mother and said that he was broke and alone. She transferred $100 into his bank account, and eight days later he called his father saying that he was stranded, that he'd done a gig up in Brisbane and was returning to Sydney via car, but his girlfriend had gotten angry with him and driven off, leaving him in Armadale without any money or any of his belongings. So he asked his dad for money for train fare. Stacy's dad deposited $200 into Stacy's account, and he usually when he would ask for money from his parents, like when he received the deposit he would call them up and say thank you but he didn't do that on this occasion say stacy withdrew the money from um atms around lismore he took 100 dollars from his bank account on the 1st of july 1994 from an atm in lismore and this was the last trace of stacy stacy's father contacted the house that he had first lived in in sydney every day for a week not knowing that he had actually moved to accommodation in lismore he then contacted police who told him that it was not a crime to go missing. So as I mentioned before, Stacy had a history of like kind of not being in great contact with his family. So they kind of, they didn't leave it there in the sense that they didn't care anymore, but they just hoped that one day that he would sort himself out and get back in contact with them. Yeah. So his parents contacted the Salvation Army's Family Tracing Services in 1996, but they couldn't uncover anything about Stacey's whereabouts. Um, there was an alleged sighting of Stacey in 1998 in Darwin, but the lead was investigated and then discounted. Stacey's parents then went to Armadale in 1998 to look for him, but found nothing. The case was reopened in 2006, and it was investigated by Detective Sergeant David Mackey, and an inquest was held in 2008, I think? Because I read an article saying there will be an inquest at this time, but I couldn't find any information about the results of the inquest. I don't know if it ever happened. I don't know if the records were sealed. I don't know anything other than what I'm telling you right now. Mm. Um, but latest info I could find, police believe that Stacy was actually in Lismore and not in Armadale when he called his dad asking for money. Um, they also believe that he was employed as a bartender in the area at the time. And they are still wanting to track down uh, the French girl that he married in 1993 and a Fijian girl who was a student at Southern Cross University who Stacey lived with for a brief time. So the police believe that he was actually lost in Lismore, not in Armadale, um, although all of his posts, all of the information uh, in the National Missing Persons Coordination Center says that he was last seen in Armadale, but he was actually most likely last to be in Lismore and that's all we know um to me who doesn't know anything but to me it sounds like Stacy was definitely having some kind of mental health problems mm -hmm. um and that there is definitely a possibility that he could have uh gotten into some kind of you know misadventure or something like that um but again, if anybody has any information, please contact Crime Stoppers. And you can also contact Lismore Detectives on 6623-1520. Um, his parents still very much 
I still very much hoping that Stacey will come home and his dad especially like didn't you know when Stacey was going through a rough time he and his dad def- didn't necessarily have the best relationship and his dad like just had the most overwhelming guilt and sadness about the fact that they never got the chance to kind of repair their relationship or anything like that so if anybody if you were that French girl the police want to talk to you hun yeah hun please please let somebody know it's gonna be right where you at girl so next case ACT this is like our first time we've ever actually first acknowledged time we've gone to Canberra mm-hmm. hi ACT hi ACT you're valid we're gonna do an episode you on are you. valid we will stuff has happened there I, I went there once. I'm sure. I've been to the Questacon. Hey, you have sick-as milkshakes. Do they? In Canberra, apparently. Who said that? I don't know. I saw some pictures of milkshakes and they were in Canberra. I was like, okay, cool. Okay, well, you had to hear first, folks. Canberra has good milkshakes. If you want to get a milkshake, head to our nation's <laughs> capital. You can see such sites as that one big lake, Parliament House. <laughs> The bus stops are interestingly shaped in Canberra, or they were in 2003. I remember my mum went there for a um, Irish dancing competition, and she went around being like, "So, because like my mum's a big shopper, she was like, so like, where are the shops? Like, where's best to go shopping?'" And people were like, "Sydney." (laughs) (laughs) I was like, "Oh, all right." Oh wow. Isn't that funny? That's so funny. That is amazing. The capital of... Even Canberra knows. Even Canberra knows. Canberra knows. Canberra knows more than anyone. Anyway, sledging Canberra aside, I'm sure there are lots of lovely people in Canberra. Um, Our next incredibly tragic missing persons case um, is the story of Amelia Housier, um, who was known to friends and family as Mia. So uh, Amelia was 18 at the time of her disappearance and she would now be 45. She's female, 160 centimetres. She was described as being of medium build with brown eyes and thick black curly hair, which her family used to tease her about and say that she had fuzzy hair, which I relate to. It's a, it's a burden that we all carry. Mm. She's a Pacific Islander of Tongan descent and um, she has a chip on her right front tooth. So this obviously is so, like, if you ever see this person in public, you can identify them. Um, This isn't just me being weird. So Amelia went missing on December 17th, 1992, after a party celebrating her high school graduation from Lake Ginandera College. Um, At the party, her and her boyfriend had a fight and broke up. So she came home from the party around 3 a.m. and she left a note at the family home saying that she was going for a walk and needed time to clear her head. One of her cousins witnessed her walking near her grandparents' house and her cousin assumed that Amelia was headed to the 7-Eleven that was nearby and didn't stop or anything like that to see what she was doing. Her family thought that Amelia was staying at her boyfriend's place, not knowing that they'd broken up, um, so they didn't notice her missing until about a week after she had left. One of her uncles found the note that she had written in her room and phoned her boyfriend who said that she hadn't seen Amelia since the graduation party. Then they called the police. She was recorded on CCTV at Woden Plaza Shopping Centre on the 22nd of December 1992 and there was no sighting or knowledge of Amelia's whereabouts until six months later in mid-1993 when she allegedly phoned her birth mother in Tonga to say that she was alive and well and was planning on being in Tonga for Christmas. There have been no leads as to Amelia's whereabouts since. There have been a number of sightings of Amelia over the years, including in uh, Western Australia and New South Wales, but none of these sightings could be corroborated by police. 
and so there has been no definitive evidence about Amelia since the phone call in mid-1993. In 2010, an age-progressed photo of Amelia was displayed on electronic billboards and airports across Australia, and her disappearance was also featured on an episode of the TV show Missing Persons Unit. The investigation into Amelia's disappearance is still ongoing, and there have been reasonably frequent appeals to the public for information um, since her disappearance, usually during Missing Persons Week, which was a couple of weeks ago when we planned to release this episode. When we planned to release this episode. But we but couldn't for we couldn't. various so reasons. Sorry. Now we're but late. we can call it Missing Persons Month. Yeah, there's no... Because that's what it should be. You don't need a week. A week is too short. There are too many missing... A week is way too short for the amount of missing people there are. Exactly. So uh, in June of 2019, so just a couple of months ago, Amelia's photo was printed on milk bottles in the ACT along with 12 other long-term missing persons. Um, So this is like obviously like the traditional missing kid on a milk bottle thing, hoping that circulating her image will trigger somebody's memory. memory... Or yep. maybe, like, guilt somebody, like, the telltale heart. Like, you're there and you're pouring your milk and you, like, see the person, you know, that you caused to, some harm to or something like that and you go crazy and tell the police. Um, I mean, that's the aim. That I'm sure that's never happened. But, you know, never say never. Never say never. So, a few weeks ago during Missing Persons Week 2019, um, her father John and her adopted mother Mary Ann spoke to the media and her mother said that, it has been almost 27 years and it is like time has stood still. To us, it is yesterday. We know that there is someone out there who knows where she is. We are always hopeful. We will we will be hopeful until the day we die. Wherever we go, we are always looking for Amelia. Amelia will always be in our lives and we will not stop looking for her. Uh, and her father, John, went on to say that if Amelia was still alive, for her to just let her family know where she is and that she's happy. And he wanted her to know that her family still loves her. Um, so as a part of the media push during Missing Persons Week, Amelia's face was displayed on posters, on buses, trains, at Canberra Airport and at GIO Stadium, whatever the stadium is in Canberra. Um, her family host a Day of Hope for Amelia in July in the weekend around her birthday every year at the Dubbo Golf Club where they play golf, they play golf, they host a lunch, uh, they give speeches and just generally, you know, do things to keep Amelia's memory alive. So some of her family is kind of split on whether or not they believe that Amelia is still alive or whether or mm. not at this point they are hoping that somebody will let them know where her remains are and, you know, hoping that if anything happened to her that the people who are responsible will eventually one day be brought to justice. Yes, please. Yes, please. Um, I didn't write this down, which is stupid, but it just came into my memory now about something that I think one of her brothers said, but every time they see, like, an islander girl on the street, like, oh, thinking like, that it's oh. Amelia, and I I just cannot imagine that. Just, I like, just, I can't, like, this is why I can't do unsolved murders, and this is why I can't yeah. talk about missing persons, because I need resolution, and I can't imagine what it would be like losing any family member and not just not not knowing not knowing the not knowing would drive like me that, absolutely that crazy. would just absolutely drive me batty and i know um i think it was like this season on um like britain's got talent or something they had a choir featured and they were um the choir was made up of people that had family members that were missing oh my god 
I have to send you this link, then we can pop it in the show notes yeah, as well. For sure. um, and because because of this performance, a lot of people, um, I think, like some of the people were found because they were like, "Oh my god, that's my family member." Like the the, yeah. the people saw the performance. Like some people like coming forward, or like um, a lot more um, like reverence and importance was put on like the search for missing people. So they there was like a spike in yeah um, people going on missing person sites and providing yeah. information and stuff like that. And that is, I did have like a spiel at the end of the episode to do, but I'll do it now because it's relevant. That is one of the most useful things you can do as a member of the public. Just go on the website. You don't know what you don't. You don't know what you, you don't know. know what you don't know. You know, if you just I've seen so many things like in my time in the, you know, true crime online club, you know, even identifying things like wallpaper in motel rooms, you know, which can lead to, you know, if they have some kind of information, they just need somebody to say, "Hey, where's this hotel?" You could solve mm-hmm. a crime just because of the fact that you happen to stay at that holiday in one time, you know? Um that's the amazing thing about the internet and you know, solving crimes. And I think that is the most powerful thing that we can do as members of the true crime community, I guess. You know, use our collective brains to do what we can. Um, anyway, yes, Amelia's story really touched me. Reading the not that much information, again, there is not a lot of information about a lot of these crimes, but reading her story, I cried so much. I don't really know why it made me cry so much, but it did. And I have so much sympathy for her family and I hope that yeah. she can be found and I hope that all these people will be found. Moving on to Victoria. Sorry, Jess, but this is the disappearance of a child. Um, Great. It's, it's the only child on this list and honestly, I didn't want to include any children because neither of us can really handle child stuff. But the story is so incredible that I, I just had to share it. So um, this one also made me cry like a effing infant. So Terry Floyd... Uh, he was 12 years old when he disappeared from a Voca in Victoria on June 28th, 1975. He would be 56 years old in 2019. Terry is male. He was um, 147 centimeters at the time of his disappearance. He would obviously be taller now. Um, with a thin build, fair complexion, and brown hair and blue eyes. So Terry was last sighted at the intersection of the Sunraysia and Pyrenees highways between 4.45 and 5 p.m. He was meant to return home at 5.30pm from playing under-15s football, but he never arrived. Apparently, Terry had arranged with a man named Unk, like short for uncle, uh, to take him home from the game to Avoca to check up on his girlfriend who had been absent from school. Unk was then going to pick him up at 4.30 to take him back home where he lived in Maribara. So Terry walked from the Avoca post office uh, with a friend to the corner of their Pyrenees and Sunraysia highways. The friend then walked back to the post office. And then the friend's mother asked the friend to head back to the corner to make sure Terry had gotten the ride around 4.55 p.m. Um, the friends saw Terry a little further up the road, leaning against a white post. And that was the last the friend saw of him. So a witness saw Terry leaning up against the pole between 4.55 and 5.05 p.m. They noticed a fawn-colored panel van stop in front of Terry. A few minutes later, when the witness looked back, both Terry and the van were gone. At 5.15, a man who was dumping animal remains in the bush uh, saw a boy standing at the back of a panel van on the side of the Pyrenees Highway. When he returned to his car from dumping the rubbish around 10 minutes later, he saw the van, but he didn't see Terry. 
between 5.15 and 5.30pm, a third witness saw the panel van turning off the highway down Box Flat Track. There have been no other sightings of Terry or the panel van since this time. So the person who was nicknamed Unk has since died, but was cleared by police of having any involvement in the disappearance. And I didn't name his real name in this for that reason. Um, mm-hmm. Terry's parents reported him missing at 7.30 p.m. that night. And police noted that Terry, police like made a note that Terry was like a bit of like a naughty kid, like he was a bit cheeky and a bit defiant. And he'd threatened to run away from home before, which honestly, name a kid that hasn't. Um the investigation uh, was taken over by the Ballarat CIB when information from witnesses indicated that Terry had not run away but had been likely abducted from the side of the road. Over 200 people were interviewed in connection to the case, but Terry's whereabouts are still unknown. The case was reopened in 2000 by the Victorian Homicide Squad and information came to light that implicated a man named Russell Kenneth Jones in Terry's disappearance. Jones had been interviewed in the days after Terry's disappearance. He had been staying in Maribara at the time while he was on bail after being charged with indecent assault as a result of sexually assaulting a young boy in a toilet block. He would later be found guilty and would spend two years in jail for this crime. A forensic psychiatrist told a judge the same year that he believed that Jones could be capable of murder. Jones had been driving from Avoca to Maribara on the day of the disappearance. He drove a 1969 fawn-coloured Holden panel van and was said to be missing for hours and hours from a party he was meant to be attending that day. Detective Senior Sergeant Ron Idles, who interviewed Jones, believed that, like, on Jones's version of events of the day when he was questioned, there was no way that he couldn't have passed Terry on the side of the road that day. Um... And Jones has continued to deny his involvement. An inquest into Terry's disappearance was held in 2001, and it was found that Terry had died from unknown causes at an unknown place at an unknown time, which is, you know, not overly helpful. So the information that was uncovered in 2000 that caused police to take another look at Raymond Kenneth Jones was also discovered by Daryl Floyd, who is Terry's younger brother. The specific piece of information, whatever it was, is not known to the public, but it was strong enough for Daryl to spend literally tens of thousands of dollars of his own money and years of his life on the excavation of an abandoned mine shaft in a state forest at Bungbong Hill, only 500 metres away from where Terry was last seen alive. Oh, God. Down the track that a witness saw the panel van drive down at the time of the disappearance. So the mine itself stopped being active in 1920, but it was used as a rubbish dump for trash and sewerage in the 60s and 70s. And over the years, Daryl has excavated literal tons of rubbish and some real weird stuff like... Oh my God, no, I totally know this case. You know this case? Was he on 60 Minutes or something? He was on 60 Minutes or a current affair or yes. one of those. No, yep, 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 yeah. yep. Um, I think I have that later in the description. Anyway, so they found all this weird stuff like discarded cow heads and stuff. But he also found a number of items that seemed to belong to Terry, um, including a Miller's shirt matching the one he was wearing on the day of his disappearance, a chain that was similar to the one that Terry often wore and that was confirmed to be made in the 1970s, so around the time of the disappearance as well, and a leather shoe. The reward offered for information into the disappearance was increased from $5,000 to $100,000 in 2010 and again to $1 million in 2015. An episode of 60 Minutes 
featured Terry's disappearance and was the result of over a year of research and collaboration with Detective Senior Sergeant Idles and Daryl Floyd and culminated in Floyd confronting Raymond Jones on camera, which was cooked. Um, so in 2018, Raymond Jones was charged by Victoria Police with 23 counts of historical child sexual abuse. One of his victims fell to pieces when he came across Jones's name while reading about Terry's disappearance and Daryl's subsequent, you know, excavation of the mine. So he was like, oh, my God, that is the guy that, you know, ruined my life. Mm. Um, the complaint said that Jones abused him multiple times between the late 1960s and early to mid-1970s when Jones was living at the Avoca Roadhouse. Jones pleaded not guilty to the charges but was committed to stand trial in February of 2019. And I haven't been able to find any updates in the case since then, so I assume he's still either waiting to head to trial or the trial is ongoing. Um, I think of... Oh, God, his little face. I know, right? He's literally, like, the stereotypical, like, little Aussie kid. Just, like... Oh, and his brother. I totally remember yeah, this. Yeah. I think I... I I feel like... I don't know if I knew about it. I've seen the episode or I just read an article about it. But I, when I reread up on this case, it was super familiar to me. I think that this has a really high likelihood of, like, being solved. I think that, you know... Can Raymond Jones is like an old man now. Hopefully, maybe if he goes to prison on these counts, there's a possibility that maybe he would give some kind of confession, maybe just for leniency. Yeah. Like, you know, he's probably never going to see the outside of a prison cell no matter what happens. But I don't know. Maybe he has the possibility to confess. I think it's almost, you know, this is barely disappearance. Like, this is almost 100% sure that he murdered this child. But if you do have any information, if you're like, actually, no, I know the real killer, um, please contact Crime Stoppers, 1-800-333-000. So our next case. Jess, you look so depressed. Yeah, I'm sad. That's, but that's the thing. I don't like I, – I like a solution. I know. There are no solutions. I like a resolution. I don't, I don't like this – why, when I was doing the Queensland season, I was like, why have I got all the ones that are either a little bit iffy or they're not <laughs> sold? I know. Why have I done I this think, to myself? I think people are super interested in true crime partly because it's almost like cathartic. You're like, something terrible has happened, but then justice was solved. So it's really hard hearing these cases where it's like, and then literally nobody knows what happened. Um, yeah. But I think it is still super important to share the unsolved stories because they have the possibility of being solved one day. Think about the Golden State yeah. Killer. That was unsolved for so long. And now – Thank you, Michelle McNamara. <laughs> those people have closure now and there is there is totally the possibility of closure for all of these cases. Mm. Um, so our next case, Tasmania, the cold state. <laughs> I don't know what Tasmania's actual slogan is, but it should be the cold state because it is – we were full of not much i was about to say communists but no that's not the word convicts yes they were all full of convicts (laughs) we were full of tasmanian tigers until somebody killed them all anyway this is tasmania did someone say they saw a tasmanian tiger recently oh People say say they see them all the time. I like I believe in everything that's not real, so I also obviously believe that Tasmanian tigers still exist. But also, those people are on fucking crack. Um, <laughs> they saw them in like central Queensland or something like that. I'm like, there's no way. Anyway, moving on. 
I've seen this, the taxidermied ones at the uh, Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery, though. They're fascinating. Ooh. They're, very, they're much bigger than you probably think. Anyway, I digress. I wanted to be, like, as non-biased as possible when I was selecting these cases. As I said, I read literally 650 cases. Um, I kind of had to go with a rubric that was, like, lots of information but also not kind of oversaturated in the media. Like, there are lots of really high-profile cases that I didn't bother to cover because people mostly already know, like William Terrell and things like that. Like, everybody knows. Yeah. That's not the point of this episode. But this case, I was like, I have a personal connection to this case and therefore I am going to speak about it. Oh, my God. This person went missing from the town right next to where my parents live. Wow. Okay. I know. And there was also another case that I didn't cover, but I put in my true crime folder for us to cover next season because he was almost certainly murdered and there was enough information for a full episode. So I bookmarked that one. Anyway, so this is the story of uh, John Norrish. This case is actually super recent. So John Norrish was last seen in St. Helens on Tasmanian's Tasmania's East Coast on November 23rd, 2018. So not even a full year ago. Wow, okay. He was uh, born in 1966, which makes him 53 years old in 2019. And he was 52 years old at the time of his disappearance. So there is weirdly uh, conflicting information about his appearance. So the National Missing Persons Coordination Centre, which is like the police or federal missing persons website, um, and the Australian Missing Persons Register lists his height as 174 centimetres and his eye colour as brown, while the Tasmanian police say that his height is 167 centimetres and his eye colour is blue or green. And the photo, like the most prominent photo of John on the Coordination Centre, on both the Coordination Centre and the Missing Persons Register page, like clearly show that he has blue eyes. So I don't know how that that discrepancy about that information got misreported. Apart from that, he is described as being as uh, of slim build with brown hair and a pointed brown slash grey beard with a medium or ruddy complexion with numerous tattoos on both arms. He walks with a limp and he has an acquired brain injury. So John was known to use a red Huffy brand mountain bike for transport and he was last seen wearing cargo pants, blundstone boots, a parka, and he always wore an Akubra style hat. If you go on his page on Australian Missing Persons Register, he looks like the most Australian man. He looks like Crocodile Dundee. He is the most Australian man that has ever lived on God's earth. Um... So much like his description, the date of when John was last seen is a little confusing and I couldn't fully nail down what the official timeline is or the official last time he was seen alive. So the Australian Missing Persons Register has him down as last being seen on November 23rd, 2018. An article from the Examiner says that he was last seen leaving the St. Helens tip on the 25th of November. And an article from the Mercury said that he was last seen on the 28th at Quail Street in St. Helens. Mm. Tasmanian police posted on their Facebook this year uh, during National Missing Persons Week that he was last seen near Bayside on Cecilia Street, St. Helens on the 26th of November. So I have no idea when he was last seen alive. I am right. Go- when was it, folks? It was sometime in the like the mid to late 20s of November 2018. I'm going with the 26th because that's from the police as the most confirmed sighting Mm. um 
So I don't, I can't say like, and then he was seen at the bank and then he disappeared. I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows what his actual last sighting was. Just one day people were like, where's John? We haven't seen him in a while. So in the days following John's disappearance, um, police followed up on reports of sightings from people within St. Helens and around the state. Um, Police didn't immediately uh, believe that the disappearance was suspicious as John had had a history of not being in contact with family and his community for a couple of days at a time. Not long, not weeks or months, but a couple of days it could go without people seeing or hearing from John. Right. So most of the area surrounding St. Helens is bushland or foresty kind of areas, um, and extensive searches were conducted both on land and with the use of helicopters. So the St. Helens Point Conservation Area was searched, as were large amounts of forest reserved in nearby Pangana. Uh, motorbikes and quad bikes were used on the ground to better search the bush and scrub areas. Searches also occurred in the Georges Bay area by police, marine, and rescue services and volunteer marine rescue. So John had actually gone missing once before. Actually, I believe he'd, I think he'd gone missing twice before. Once not known, the second time in 2014, um, he became disoriented while he was visiting Narontapu National Park, which I wrote the pronunciation of next to it, but still probably got wrong, in northern Tasmania. And he was eventually located by search and rescue. He's just a bit confused about where he was. Um... As I mentioned before, John had an acquired brain injury, so it was possible for him to become disorientated and confused quite easily. But John's sisters don't believe that this disappearance is similar to the one that occurred in 2014. One of his sisters said that she believed that something had happened to John and that someone is aware of his location or has seen or heard something to do with his disappearance. She said that he couldn't have just vanished into thin air overnight. So John was one of seven long-term missing Tasmanians that was highlighted as part of Missing Persons Week. Um, In the post on Facebook, they noted that uh, John's red mountain bike has also never been found. But what I could glean from the comments on the post, some people were like, no, they found his bike at blah, blah, blah. There was some kind of report or something that said that it had been found, but it actually has never been located. So both John and the red Huffy mountain bike, no idea where they are, both missing. Um, They also noted in this post that a report was being prepared for the coroner about John's disappearance. So hopefully we can find out some more information um, and an official timeline of his disappearance can be revealed. Um, So if anybody has information about John's disappearance, please contact Crime Stoppers or the Tasmanian police on 131 444. I feel like this is also a case that could, you know, people – could have seen something and not realized that they'd seen something and it is yeah this is so recent this is only like 10 months ago you know i would hold out hope that he was alive and just somewhere and maybe just a little bit confused about where he was i think it's super possible so if you know anything let somebody know mm. so oh, mm, i know it's rough that guy reminded me of my dad kind of and so i felt upset i felt upset reading all of these cases so our next case, South Australia, um, this is the case of Stella Ferugia, who was reported missing on Thursday, October 18th, 1984, from Henley Beach, South Australia. She was last seen on Wednesday, October 17th, at the, at the home that she shared in Henley Beach with her boyfriend, who was the one who reported her missing. 
So Stella was born in 1966, making her 18 years old at the time of her disappearance. She would be 53 years old in 2019. She was 154 centimeters tall, medium build, with straight golden brown hair and brown eyes. Stella was described as outgoing, kind, generous, and easily led by others. She left behind all her clothing, her dog, and her bank account was untouched. She had no contact with her family after her disappearance. Stella was raised in Victoria, but she moved to Queensland in 1983 after she experienced kind of like a rough phase with her family. She began a relationship with a man in Queensland and then moved to South Australia with him. Stella was a victim of domestic violence in this relationship and she kicked her boyfriend out of the home after he hit her, although she didn't um, report it to police. There was no official record of it. So her new boyfriend, who she met recently afterwards, um, Wojciech Kubale, moved into the house in Henley Beach after Stella kicked her first boyfriend out. There was also some evidence that there had been domestic violence in that relationship too, um, and Wojciech would be the one to report Stella missing. So during the period of time that she was with her first boyfriend, whose name doesn't appear to be public record, um, Stella had written a letter to her system demanding that she make contact with her by a specific date, and if she didn't, she would cut off all ties with her family. The date came and went, and sisters Stella's sister eventually did reply to the letter, but she re- received no response from Stella. For six years after her disappearance, her family would receive phone calls from an unknown caller. The caller would simply remain silent on the other end of the line before hanging up. Initially, it was believed by police that it was possible that Stella had left of her own accord, but eventually the police confirmed that they suspected that she had been murdered. Both her first boyfriend and Wojciech Kubale were considered persons of interest in the case, although Wojciech died in 2010. In 2008, police were hoping that a deathbed confession from convicted murderer Valme Beck would shed some light on Stella's disappearance. Valme Beck and her husband Barry Watts were convicted of the abduction, rape, and murder of 12-year-old Cyan Kingy in Noosa, Queensland in November 1987. Beck and Watts were linked to... Sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, you'd know about it for sure. We probably should have covered it in our Queensland season. It's very well known. If you saw a picture of her, you would recognize her straight away. Um... Beck and Watts were linked to several other murders of young women, including Sharon Phillips, Louise Bell, and Stella Ferrugia. Um, fun fact about Valme Beck, convicted murderer, she made friends with Pauline Hansen when Pauline was in prison for electoral fraud in 2003. Oh, well, there you go. I know. If murdering people wasn't enough of an indictment on your character. Um, so Valme Beck died in May of 2008 without confessing to any other murders. From what I could understand, Valme and her husband were in South Australia kind of around the time, so police were like, well, maybe they did that one too. But they never found any evidence to corroborate that. So a poster with information about Stella and an age-progressed image of her was displayed at Canberra Airport in 2013 um, on International Missing Children's Day. I don't know why it was on International Missing Children's Day because she was an adult, but for reference, that is that day is May 25th. So in April of this year, police offered a $200,000 reward for information and assistance that le- led to the conviction of those responsible for Stella's murder or information that leads to the location and recovery of her remains. 
Detective Sergeant Cameron Georg, who was the major crimes detective in charge of the case, stated that it was more than likely that Stella was deceased, given the amount of time she had to make contact with her family, but until such time as you have a body or a confession, there remains the very faint hope that she may be alive. So Christine Lilkendi, who is Stella Ferrucci's sister, has not given up hope that Stella may still be alive. Um, uh, Christine stated at the time when the bill the billboard of Stella was put up in Canberra Airport, um, from time to time, people ask me what it's like to have a missing person in the family. It's very different to the death of a family member. When someone passes, there is usually a funeral, a celebration of life, perhaps a burial, a place to mourn, a time to remember and grieve. When someone goes missing, there is none of that, just fear, confusion, emptiness, and consuming emotions. Which which hit me very hard. I don't... I think, yeah, Stella's case kind of highlights you know, as a woman who has possibly been a victim of domestic violence, you know, when you leave is the most dangerous time in that person's life. Not saying that I know anything about this case or know anything about what happened, but I think the fact that she left an abusive boyfriend and then almost immediately shacked up with another guy who may have been abusive, you know, that that fear is definitely there for her case. And I hope that there is some way of bringing closure to her family and her sister. I just don't understand how people can, like, live with themselves. Right? How can you go about every when, day knowing that like, you've done something like that going down the shops someone? and, like, buying a bottle of milk or something. Like, how do you yeah. not just be like, oh, yes, yeah, so sorry. Somebody's like, how's your day, mate? And you're like, great, I'm consumed with guilt from a murder that I committed in the 1980s. Like, I feel guilty about shit. All the time. And I've never done anything yeah. wrong. I don't understand. I don't understand. I think it's – I think people who can do that aren't human. I think guilt and remorse is a part of being human. And if you don't feel it, there's something wrong with your brain. Hole. Like I was literally lying awake the other night about an order at work. And, I mean, it was mm-hmm. fine. And, like, literally if something yeah. had happened, it wouldn't have been the biggest drama ever. But I was literally, like, lying awake and I going, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Like, I've made a mistake. I've done something terrible. God can never forgive me. Meanwhile, there are people out there who have literally murdered and they're like, I'm fine. Can I get $5 worth of chips, please? I can't handle that. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Western Australia. Our next state. state. Our next state. I've done some preliminary research and I'm excited to dive in. We have to make sure that we don't double up. We don't, what? Double R. Double R. Well, we always talk about, we always decide what cases we're going to do before we do them. It's a big state. Not that. We're not that unprofessional. Um, No. So this is the case of Julie Cutler. So Julie was 22 years old when she went missing in June of 1988. She would now be aged 54. She's female, 162 centimetres tall, same height as me, with medium build, dark brown hair, green blue eyes and a fair complexion. Julie was last seen at 12.30 a.m. on the 20th of June, 1988, leaving the Palmelia Hilton Hotel after a staff party in Perth, Western Australia. She was reported missing when she failed to return home the next day. 
So two days after her disappearance, her car was located dumped in the surf at Cottesloe Beach. So like what? Like driven onto her a beach? car. Her car washed up on the beach. What? Her car, like, like a, a whale, washed up on the beach like a beached whale. <laughs> yes. Weird. The vehicle was empty. Police believe that whatever happened to Julie must have occurred within five hours of her leaving the hotel, as there were no sightings of the car at daybreak when swimmers and surfers and the like arrived at the beach. So they believe that the car was driven or rolled off the seawall straight into the water, where it floated momentarily before waves brought it out and it sunk to the bottom of the ocean, and then eventually was brought back up when the tide came back in. Um, so the police do not believe that Julie was in the car when it went into the water as none of her belongings or anything else relating to her washed up on the beach. So what happened is that like the car washed up and like the back seat of the car washed up separately. So the police were like, well, if she was in the car or if any of her belongings were in the car, if the wave action kind of like dislodged the seat, then it also would have swept out any of her, like, because of the wave action, they knew that if any – if herself or any of her belongings in the car, they all would have washed up at the same time. Like, there's no yeah, – yeah. there's no way that her body was washed out or anything like that. So they believe that she was not in the car. So police at the time interviewed countless people. Um, Julie's home was searched and her work colleagues and guests at the hotel were all interviewed. An examination of Julie's car revealed that one of the back doors of her car was unable to be locked. They believed that it was possible that somebody placed themselves in the back of Julie's car while she was inside the hotel and forced her to drive to an unknown location once she returned to her vehicle. There was a possibility that Julie could have gone to the Burswood Casino after she left the hotel, but police were unable to recover CCTV footage or any witness testimony placing her, he- placing her there at the time. So eight years after Julie's disappearance, a person found a purse... Um, a day-to-day diary and other personal items buried in the sand dunes at Cottesloe Beach, about a kilometre south of where her car was located. The diary was from the year 1988, so the year of her disappearance, and it only had pen marks in it, like somebody was testing a pen. It didn't have any kind of revealing information. Writing on it. Writing in it, yeah. Um, At the time, police asked some friends and family if they were Julie's, but none of her friends and family could definitively say if they were. So the... Photos were taken of them, and then the items were destroyed. In 2018, after the case was reopened for review, additional people were asked about the items, and it was found that there was, in fact, a possibility that they could have been Julie's. Um, police then began a, quote, slight excavation of the dunes um, in November 2018 in the hope of discovering any more personal items of Julie's, but it appears that no new items were found. A few months earlier... Um, in June of 2018, 30 years after Julie's disappearance, the reward for information was increased to $250,000. Police confirmed to the media that the push for more information had resulted in some useful tips from members of the public. The police believe that Julie met with foul play and that there are people who have information about what happened to Julie. As well as the reward money, police stated that they would consider offering protection for an informant from prosecution as long as they were not directly involved in Julie's suspected murder. Julie's name has come up a couple of times in relation to other cases, um, most particularly the Claremont serial killer. So Julie Cutler's family was told that she was not likely to be a victim of the Claremont serial killer as she disappeared in 1988 and the killings then didn't begin until 96. 
Um, but DNA evidence has since linked the Claremont suspect Bradley Edwards to a sexual assault in 1988, which demonstrates that he was indeed active the year that Julie disappeared. So the police don't seem to think that that's a goal, but I went down a deep rabbit hole of this case on the bigfooty.com forums. Um, and what? they are very much keen on the whole Claremont serial killer link. Also, reading that forum made me realize, like, if we say anything wrong or, like, any incorrect information in these podcasts, there are people that will kill us. Because <laughs> they were so passionate and so, like, you know, they knew so much about the case, apparently. I couldn't corroborate whether or not any of it was true, but they were talking like they knew. And I was like, oh, my God, if I say one wrong thing about this person's disappearance, Bigfooty.com is We're going to get murdered. Yeah. Um, also, Bigfooty.com has true crime forums. Bigfooty.com. Bigfooty.com. And they all had, like, pictures of, like, AFL people, like, kicking footballs and stuff. And I was like, this isn't where I expected this research to go, and yet here I am reading genuinely <laughs> 58 are. pages of forum content from people with, like, football-related signatures. news and forum. A- what? Mm-hmm. So in the off-topic section of Bigfooty.com, there is a very robust true crime section where people post... Not footy. Yeah, in not footy. Poker, UFC and wrestling, cricket, general sports. What the fuck? Yeah, they had a lot of information. They had a lot of stuff. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't wait to read that when I get home. <laughs> it was a, it was a it was a rabbit hole and I was literally like, "Oh my god, these people know so much." And then I would google it and I was like, "Oh my god, this some of these people are child sex dolls?" What? Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah. That's a National Missing Persons Week Jaws stuff about George Pell. Yeah. They're into it. I mean, people who like football also like other things, I guess. It's wild. But also, like, anybody who knows, like, they used – in every forum back in the day, there would be an off-topic section and there would almost always be a true crime section. Like, I've been on – I've been on true crime forums that have had nothing to do with whatever the forum was about. I used to talk about true crime on a Twilight forum. Back in the the good old emo days. Anyway, I'm going to move on. <laughs> the internet is vast. Anyway, so our final disappearance is the story of Jamie Herdman. So Jamie has been missing since November of 2006, and he was last seen at Dally Waters, Northern Territory. He was 26 at the time of his disappearance and would be 39 now. Jamie was male, 175 centimetres tall, with a slim build, hazel eyes, and brown dreadlocks to about collarbone length, um, with a fair complexion. Jamie, who was born in New Zealand, was living with his brother in Broome and working in a furniture removal company prior to his disappearance. Jamie wanted to travel around Australia in his van. Um, On the 23rd of November 2006, he left Broome apparently with the intention of heading to Darwin. He left without telling anyone where he was going, including his brother and the company he worked for. Jamie's brother Carl believed that it was possible that Jamie was told that someone was after him, which spooked him and prompted him to leave in a hurry. Jamie was last seen on November 30, hitchhiking along the Stewart Highway. 
He was last seen wearing khaki knee-length shorts, a brown sleeve shirt, a brown short sleeve shirt, hiking boots, a dark hat, and had a dark rucksack. Jamie's van was later found abandoned outside the highway in Daly Waters, about 600 kilometers south of Darwin. His car was unlocked and his keys were in the ignition. All his belongings were in the car, including cash and his mobile phone. Extensive land and air searches were undertaken, but no trace of Jamie was ever found. And the terrain around where Jamie disappeared, it's about what you'd expect for the Northern Territory, like desert, 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 a bit of scrub, more desert. Um, And the police searched for four straight days, but had to call the search off when no trace of Jamie was found. Although the search was indeed extensive, it didn't begin until late December 2006, almost a month after Jamie went missing. And like, not to be morbid, but if he died somewhere in the outback, it would take a lot less than a month for some scavenger or something to move his bones away from their original location. Mm. So initially there was some hope that Jamie had hitchhiked to a remote Aboriginal community that was cut off by monsoonal floodwaters in the weeks immediately following Jamie's disappearance and he was just, like, chilling. Stuck. Stuck, not knowing that everybody was, like, flipping their lids. Um, But sadly this turned out to not be the case. There have been numerous reported sightings of Jamie, Jamie since his disappearance and sightings came from all over the shop from the Catherine in the Northern Territory to Mount Isa, Townsville and the Flinders Highway in Queensland. Um, the Queensland police were brought in to investigate the sightings but they couldn't be confirmed. Um, and the sightings came in for years, like years, like up until like 2008 and 2010 from ACT in New South Wales um, but yeah, none can be validated. And I think some of that comes from the fact that like Jamie kind of looked like the stereotypical like backpacker, like with right. like dreadlocks and like, you know, kind of tanned and like carrying all the, you know, driving around in his van. It would be super easy. Like somebody be like, oh, we're on the lookout for a backpacker with dreadlocks. You'd be like, yeah, there's 506 of them in the hostel down the road. <laughs> So I think that maybe has something. Sorry, I'm not laughing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you, you, it's okay. You're allowed to laugh when I make a joke. You just, said, <laughs> you just said that really quick and that was funny. Um, okay, so go. I think that contributes to the signings. I don't necessarily think. I don't necessarily think. It was all him. All yeah. Jamie. I don't necessarily think that they're incorrect, but I just think that he fits a description. Like if somebody was like, we're mm. looking for a white girl with brown hair. Like, it could be me or 8 trillion other people on this planet, you know. Like, we're not yeah. necessarily the most distinctive-looking characters out there. So Jamie's brother Carl continues to appeal for to the public for information about his brother's disappearance. Uh, he described Jamie as quiet and shy, who was the kind of person who stuck to themselves, but he had a passion for the outdoors and a great sense of adventure. There has been no new information about Jamie's disappearance now for almost 10 years. So if you have any information about Jamie's disappearance or you happen to have seen a hitchhiker recently that fits the description, please call Crime Stoppers, 1-800-333-000. Thus concludes our missing person episode. Um, I just wanted to say that, as we mentioned in previous episodes, you don't have to wait any amount of time to report somebody missing. No. You will not no, get in trouble don't. with the police if you report somebody missing no, you will and not. it turns out they were just down the shops. Um it is better to report and be wrong than not report and possibly delay an investigation. Um, if you are missing, if you are concerned, 
If you haven't seen somebody in a while and you are concerned that they're missing but are worried that maybe they have chosen to gone missing to go missing of their own accord because they're escaping from a violent situation or anything else, if you contact the police and they make contact with the missing person, they will not tell the people that they are running from. So they have no obligation or anything to inform the family or anything else that a person has gone missing. If they find that person and they say, I'm so sorry, but I've escaped a domestic violence situation or I've fled from my homophobic family or something like that. The police have no obligation to inform those family members or anything like that. So if you're concerned about somebody and you think something terrible may have happened to them, but also you think there may be legitimate reasons for them going missing, still call the police. Still call the police. That person. Do not wait. Do not wait. Call the police. Um, And if... I know, for some weird reason, if there's someone, not a weird reason, but if there is someone out there that's listening to us now that is missing or have left of their own accord, there will be someone that is looking for you, whether or not it feels like it or not. Mm -hmm. Like there is someone as alone as you probably felt when you left. That's not the case. That person will care. There is yes. a there please is a make little... contact with anybody. Exactly. In a Patreon episode we have coming up, this is not at all an ad ad for our Patreon, but also it is. Um, hashtag not ad. Hashtag not an ad. Hashtag not sponsored. There there is a situation wherein somebody went missing and then felt that they had to remain missing because they didn't feel like they could contact their family, and their family had spent years looking for them and being worried about them. And then eventually that person was found and it was like, homegirl, if you were just like, oh my God, actually, I still do want to be with my family, they are not going to be mad at you, you know? No, they will not. Love is a much more powerful emotion than anger. So everybody just do the right thing. Um, Do the right thing. And if it's the right thing for you to leave a situation and not have contact with your family members, do that. Do that too. But just tell the people that should know that yep. you're safe, that you're safe. Yeah. Because that is what That is paramount. Matters. Your safety is paramount. That's what we're learning. That's what we're trying to push. Safety is paramount. Safety um, is paramount. People who go missing are important and they don't deserve to just fall by the wayside and just be like a name no, on a website. No, just because of someone's socioeconomic position, yeah. because of their the colour of their skin. Yeah. All missing people matter and are Mm -hmm. cared for by someone and they all deserve a chance to be found. And, you know, it might not have been the case in the past, but I feel like law enforcement is getting better with people that Mm -hmm. are considered like high risk victims. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that Queensland police do get a lot of help from the public by posting on their Facebook page um, anytime that there is um, like a a missing person like I know a lot or of people like, get on there and share is mm-hmm. exactly get on and share and like you know as annoying as maybe auntie joan is from the middle of nowhere like posting about a missing person like she's fighting the good fight and doing the right thing so exactly yeah. and you know what this country like you know Australia is difficult this because country is really vast like we have a large amount of area that isn't that isn't much populated by a lot of people and like there isn't 
you know, there, there's like hundreds and hundreds of kilometers that are not like there are no people anywhere. So yeah, this is important. It's super. This important. is important. And when we share stuff on our Facebook about missing persons, we are not insinuating that they have been murdered at all. We are just uh, yeah, we just doing wanna... the push on mm-hmm. getting people found. Yeah, we are not insinuating that people have been murdered. Exactly. You never know what you've seen. I always think about. Do you remember like Daniel Morecambe? Like the bus driver that saw him, like the bus driver who went yeah. past. Like that's I always think about him on the reg. Oh, I think about him all the time. We will never cover that case. Um, no, never. Never in a million years. And I also can't because I have a family connection to it. So no, thank you. Yeah, no, we're never going to do that. We're also, yeah, we're never going to cover any we, – we both have connections to real life matters and we're never going to cover them because we don't want to like exploit, yeah. you know – no, exactly. Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, but I always think about the fact that that bus driver saw him and, like, that was such an important piece of information that led to, you know, them knowing that something terrible had happened to Daniel. You never know what simple thing you're going to see that would that has the possibility to, you know, be the missing link in a case. So if you see anything... Exactly. You never know. You never Anytime know. Anytime I've witnessed um, anything... Because I know, um, like, I've seen assaults, I've seen um, car accidents and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Like, I always make sure and report because, you know, whether or not I'm, like, the fifth person to come forward with information or I don't know if I'm the first. Like, it's very important. Exactly. And If you you know anything about any Mm -hmm. crime, please go and report it. Let a bitch know. (laughs) Let a bitch know. New t-shirt. If you know about a crime, let a bitch know. Anyway, thank you for listening to this you know. case, which was fully indulging Excellent my job, Ellen. passion. Thank you. Excellent job, Ellen. You're so good. Um, thank you so much, guys, for listening to this bonus episode. We'll be moving on to our WA season. I have yet to pick my crimes. Do you know what your first one's going to be, Ellen? The Kimberley. No, that's in Northern Territory. Um, I, do, I have some ideas. I have some ideas. Okay. There's one, actually, we that I We need to spent- brainstorm. I spent hours reading about it and they were like, all the information on this crime is sealed apart from this. And I was like, okay, that's a no. Great. But hopefully in a couple of years we can cover it. Hopefully. Um, so, yes, we have our Patreon available if you would like to become a Patreon. Um, we've got different tiers where you can uh, sponsor this podcast uh, to help us supply, um, to help us get basically our sources. Um, we have merch available on TeePublic that you can purchase. Um, as we mentioned on our last episode, we are going to be going through a rebranding very soon, which is really exciting. We're working with an artist who's going to be creating some artwork for us for our new logo, which we're very excited about. Um, and, uh, if you have any cases that you would like us to look at at Western Australia or where we'll be heading next is, um, the Northern Territory, please email us at murderintheland.com. at gmail.com. Um, we are trying to figure out like what we're going to do after we have finished all of the states. I honestly didn't think this was going to happen. I didn't think we'd be running for this long. Um, so we will be figuring that as well. So if you have any ideas, please send us an email. Um, keep and look out on our Facebook. Um, we post uh, obviously missing persons that come up. Um, any relevant cases we'll post about as well. Um, so keep an eye out there. We are on Instagram as well, which you can uh, let us know. Let us like reach out. Let us know that you're listening. It's nice to hear. And please make sure you're rate reviewing and subscribing. We're doing really well on Spotify. I think like a part of the That's Not Canon, because we're under the That's Not Canon Productions umbrella, um, which is a 
plethora of a lot of amazing podcasts, but I think we're one of the leadings so on many Spotify. Shows. So exciting. Zane is enthusiastically nodding. Um, so thank you all so much for joining us for this other episode. We'll see you in our Western Australian season. We miss you. Bye. Bye. We miss you. Bye. <laughs>What should I listen to now? We are Castology. This is our podcast about podcasts. We are your Castologists, Patrick Shearer, Liz Best, and Zancy Weber. Each week, we'll bring you three of the best and sometimes not so best podcasts around. We'll also do the hard work and trawl the RSS feeds to find the newest podcast that should be on your radar. And then next week, we come back and tell you what we thought of the recommendations and bring three new sparkling podcasts to check out. Now, will we always agree with each other's picks? Probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know that's how reviews work. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcatcher of your choice. That's Not Gunner Productions podcast. Life admin. Yep. It even sounds boring. No wonder it goes on the long finger. But when you do get round to it, a good place to start is by reviewing your mortgage. You really never know if there's a better option unless you look into it. That's where the Ulster Bank Mortgage Team could help. Wherever you bank, get in touch and find out about switching your mortgage to us. Just search Ulster Bank Switch. Ulster Bank. Help for what matters. Over 18s only. Ulster Bank Ireland DAC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Forward. It's the one move we're all ready to take. And at the Audi Moving Forward sales event, we're ready to help you on that journey. All Audi dealerships are now open. With tailored solutions to suit your individual needs, like the Audi A6 Saloon, with PCP finance from only €499 per month. Now is the time to make an appointment. Now is the time to start moving forward. Audi. Vosprung Duck Technik. Terms and conditions apply. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.